Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week I am trying to find out whether peace in Donbass is possible. It's a few years since Ukraine was plunged into first a domestic political crisis and then uh, when, that resolved, uh, when that was beginning to be resolved, an international one as Russia annexed uh, Crimea and a, uh, a further conflict erupted in eastern Ukraine. And it looked like this conflict was, was stuck in a never-ending stalemate. But then out of the blue in September this year, the Russians announced that they were willing to accept the idea of a United Nations peacekeeping operation in eastern Ukraine to help implement the so-called Minsk agreement on the conflict. To help us make sense of what this means, whether the, an end to the conflict in Donbass might be in sight, what the motivations are in Russia, how it will be seen in Ukraine, and what it means for the bigger picture of relations between Russia and the West. I am very pleased to be joined by two amazing ECFR experts. First up, we have Andrew Wilson, who is one of the world's leading experts on Ukraine and certainly the biggest expert on Ukraine at ECFR, uh, who's a senior policy fellow on our Wider Europe program. And also back to the podcast, we have Kadri Leek, another senior policy fellow at ECFR, who's been writing a lot about the Russian side of the question and uh, has recently returned from the Valdai conference where she heard uh, the Russian president talking about this, but also uh, did extensive interviews uh, earlier in the year around the time when this was coming out with all sorts of people from different parts of of the Russian system. Um, For those who are not steeped in Ukrainian politics and who've not been following the situation very closely, maybe we could just get you, Andy, to give us a very brief introduction to how we got to where we are now, and then we can get Kadri to explain the Russian uh, manoeuvre and whether we should take that seriously. Andy, tell us about, uh, give us a potted history of the conflict in Ukraine. Okay, your potted history in uh, 30 seconds is that um, Russia annexed Crimea in um, March 2014. That isn't legally recognised by anybody. The situation is not as stable as often depicted, particularly with the Crimean Tatar community. It then perhaps hubristically fermented further trouble in East Ukraine, unsuccessfully in most parts. With little green men. With two unrecognised republics in half of the eastern Donbass region. War has been going on since then, uh, the summer of 2014. The two peace agreements that you mentioned were signed in September 2014 and February 2015, Minsk agreements. Uh, another significant date is September 2015, when Russia shifted resources into the war in Syria. So since then, you've had a kind of lower-level conflict, but people are still being killed. The fighting is still going on. Wonderful. That was very, very, uh, very short and very clear. So, Kadri, do you want to tell us a bit about why Russia... Uh, did this move, why it's a big deal? Or is it a big deal? (laughs) Well, I I think it is quite a big deal because up until this autumn, Russia had been 
very much opposed to any involvement of an international peacekeeping force in Donbass. That had been repeatedly uh, suggested by Western interlocutors, but the reaction from the Kremlin was always no. Uh, and then, suddenly, on September 5, speaking in China, President Putin suggested that we could actually involve UN peacekeepers. Um, why did he do so and what does it mean? Um, I think Russia is trying to move somewhere. It's a sort of probing exercise. They don't know themselves where this will lead to. They take one step at a time uh, and then re-evaluate the situation. But I don't think that it is just a spoiling exercise. I think Russia wants to change its relationship also with the West a little bit. Uh, and I think the reasons need to be uh, found in the general context. Now, Russia expected that European sanctions would not last long. Uh, for a while there was expectation that European Union itself might collapse following the Brexit. That now has not happened. Neither has Ukraine collapsed. That was another expectation in Moscow, that Poroshenko government will not last long, uh, chaos will follow and that will open up options for Moscow. That has not happened. And I think America also plays a role here, the Trump presidency. Contrary to Russia's expectations, Trump has not provided Russia settlement in Donbass in Russia's terms. Uh, America's official position is, is quite tough. But at the same time, Trump has removed that sort of tough ideological standoff that Russia expected to have in a case of Hillary Clinton presidency. So Russia feels probably that nothing much can be gained by prolonging the deadlock. And so they are trying to do something about it. So Andy, are people dancing in the streets in Kiev? <laughs> no, not at all. Like Russia, um, Ukraine's aims are rather undefined. Uh, Ukraine is also taking it one step at a time. Although, in the position that it is, fighting a very, very difficult war, um, its sort of search for international support is key. But again, they'll take whatever they can get. There's an OSCE mission on the ground with a limited mandate. They've um, appealed to the UN, they've appealed to the EU also to send some kind of mission. The nature of that mission isn't defined, whether it's peace monitoring, peacekeeping or peacemaking. The more radical, the better, as far as Ukraine is concerned. Ukraine's also passed two bills. Um, one is fully passed, the other and signed by the president. The other is still going through parliament, which define their aims. One is called ensuring state sovereignty uh, in the Donbass uh, as a kind of long-term aim. That's something any state would want. Uh, the other is called ensuring conditions for the peaceful resolution of the situation. Again, that's something any state would want, uh, given the nature of the humanitarian crisis. Isn't there a conflict between those two goals, though? Because on the one hand, um, if you want to, to de-escalate things, you've got to freeze the conflict, which means that you don't get sovereignty back. In fact, you probably give up sovereignty. And uh, if you want to retain sovereignty, then it means that you'll probably be engaged in some kind of perpetual conflict, because Russia definitely doesn't want uh, Ukraine to to have full sovereignty over its territory and to lose its leverage over the government? Yes, um, that, that is a, a potential conflict. Um, 
And moreover, both of these two aims conflict with a more fundamental one, what Ukraine really wants in the long term, given the, the mess that's been created in this region. Um, it's not clear whether everybody really wants it back. Um, that's one reason why the first bill, the state sovereignty bill, hasn't fully gone through Parliament yet. But yeah, we're at the very beginning of, the, of this process, so Ukrainians, Ukraine's constrictions might come out um, if we move further into it as well. That may well be Russia's basic point to um, lead Ukraine into morass of further constriction. So how do we think this is going to move forward? I mean, get, maybe also if people are not following it that closely, um, you can also tell us like, how much of a conflict there actually is at the moment. I mean, is it just that there are you know, troops being moved around and weapons being fired, or are there large numbers of people being killed at the moment? Well, it's a bit First World War, um, as in you know, 1916, 1917. Minus the, mass, the millions of people being killed. Yeah, by which I meant people are dug in, in trenches, <laughs> right. often literally. But there is an artillery war, there are some areas of fluidity. Uh, people are killed, not every day, but certainly every week. Um, so it's certainly very violent and not frozen at all. So, um, Katri, maybe we've heard from Andy that Ukraine's a bit kind of uh, divided about this. What about Russia? Has Russia got a, a clear sort of uh, consensus or is there a fight going on there as well? Well, I think Russia is also divided, not quite the way Ukraine is. And in Russia, of course, there is one decision maker. Uh, so in the end, whatever President Putin decides will happen. But I don't think that he is decided yet. And um, on the NEF surface, I think there are different approaches uh, and different institutional cultures. Um, I think one needs to know the Donbass conflict has been handled by Vladislav Surkov, who is aide of President Putin, working for the presidential administration. And he has been in charge of Normandy negotiations and everything that relates to that. The uh, foreign ministry has been somewhat sidelined um, and these two institutions have totally different approach. Foreign Ministry sees it as a foreign policy issue and handles it accordingly. Whereas Surkov comes from a different background. He is a political technologist, a grey cardinal and evil genius, as some say, behind many uh, domestic political processes in, in Russia. So for him, the whole project has been more about political technology than about foreign policy. And my understanding is that the peacekeeping proposal originates in the foreign ministry. They have been pushing for something like that for a long time because they do not see how the conflict could be resolved otherwise. And another thing that one needs to know, I don't think Russia ever wanted to keep Donbass as a frozen conflict. Moscow's aim has always been to uh, reinsert Donbass into Ukrainian political system as a leverage over Kiev's future decision making. And the question just is about how to go about it. So foreign ministry, um, they seem to be thinking in terms of a longer term process. First you would have a peacekeeping force on the contact line, then you would make use of the uh, Minsk process to uh, move closer to the settlement, but in the end, as many foreign ministry people suggest privately, final settlement should be linked to the talks about European security system and Ukraine's place in it. Uh, but then again, Surkov, 
He sees it differently. I think he, in his view, different kinds of leverage can be acquired over Kiev. So he's not that keen on such long-term process. And it seems to me that his position has shifted quite significantly. And he's basically looking for a way out. Although, of course, that needs to be a face-saving way out. And Russia doesn't know if that will be granted to it. They definitely will not accept a failure, uh, a defeat in Donbass. That is totally out for them. So my, what it boils down to, I think, is that Russia's strategy can, to a large extent, be now shaped by Western and Ukrainian responses. Uh, and what makes it complicated is that none of us really knows what to make of Russia. I'm giving you my view, but, yeah. but not everyone shares it. Well, that's one of the interesting things. So the, the West, uh, we can go into, into what Europe and, and the US have been doing um, a bit later, uh, but not very much publicly. <laughs> I mean, there's been a, a lot of silence since uh, this proposal was made uh, almost two months ago now. What's Ukraine trying to do? Are they, do they see this as a, as a kind of trap which needs to be blocked or do they see any hope of, uh, of shaping it in a positive way, Andy? Well, there's two big differences between the, the Ukrainian set of proposals and the Russian set. And one is the nature of a putative mission. Uh, Russia would probably want it to be as soft as possible, as close to a monitoring exercise only as they could get it. Whereas Ukraine would prefer a much uh, stronger mandate along the kind of lines of Bosnia, uh, as that was eventually agreed, uh, more peacekeeping, even peacemaking. But there's also the question of where this kind of mission would go. Uh, Kadri mentioned the line of contact. That's technically within Ukraine. It's um, the kind of military standoff that we currently have within the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Whereas Ukraine thinks that would simply solidify the existence of the Red Double Republics if there was no peacekeepers on the actual border, the Russian-Ukrainian border basically behind the republics through which those republics are supplied by the Russians. Uh, and if there's no peacekeepers there, many Ukrainians would think that was a very, very bad deal. It would simply um, solidify the long-term existence of these entities. And that's the main point of disagreement, I guess, within Ukraine. Uh, there is a kind of harder-nosed faction that you sometimes hear amongst veterans and one or two nationalist organisations that still believe in ultimate victory so wouldn't want anything that restrained them on the line of contact. But their voices are pretty marginal. The, the key dispute is whether you can get a harder mission in and that does something to kind of cut off Russian supply of the rebels. And is there any way in which even having a soft mission makes the situation worse, Kadri? I mean, what do you think Europe should do? Well, I think um, Europe should still try to steer Russia towards leaving um, Donbass without trying to maintain the region as legal leverage over Kiev's future decision-making. Uh, the tricky thing is that the Minsk agreement as it stands, it does favour Russia more than it does Ukraine. It is Russia's agreement actually. So uh, if one is honest, it's actually the West and Ukraine that are trying to tweak the agreement a little bit in order to make it more acceptable to Ukraine. Russia is very attached to the Minsk Agreement, also the date when Putin proposed the uh, peacekeeping force 5th of September. That was quite symbolic because that was the uh, anniversary of the first set of Minsk Agreements. 
uh, that were signed on 5th of September 2014. So Russia definitely doesn't want to give up on Minsk, but it might... But what does that mean? I mean, everyone talks about Minsk. Very few people know what's actually in it. So what does not giving up on Minsk actually mean in practice? Well, Minsk gives uh, quite extensive self-governance to the uh, rebellious regions in Donbass. And uh, in theory, Russia might try to use that as a sort of Trojan horse in the Ukrainian political system. Uh, but it's not also so clear-cut, because in a way, if Ukraine's territorial integrity is uh, restored, then these regions will be dissolved in the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. And the oblast powers are actually loyal to Ukraine, and now they work in the so-called exile from the Ukraine-controlled territory as opposed to Donetsk and Luhansk. So basically what Russia could hang on to would be the mayors of Donetsk and, and Luhansk. Uh, and, and maybe longer term, not even them, because there is no um, natural constituency for any special status or, 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 or separation, as far as I can tell. But Ukraine's not been implementing those provisions to allow elections locally and has been sort of blocking them. Well, Ukraine's position is that you cannot have an election when you, have, when you don't have ceasefire, when you have Russian troops in the region and so forth, and that is quite clear. And I think the international position right now is as well that election is crucial, but you need to create proper conditions for elections and that would mean that you need peacekeeping force in all of the territory of Donbass, not just the contact line. That will not do the trick and everyone is quite clear about that. So the question also is to what extent Russia will go along with Western vision of settlement. What we hear from people involved in the negotiation is that they just about might if the sort of uh, official uh, framework remains the Minsk process and, and Normandy format and so forth. They don't want to change it all from the scratch. Well, one thing worth pointing out actually is that this territory, the Donbass, even though it's divided, is less than 10% of Ukraine both in territory and in population. So if it was reintegrated, that wouldn't necessarily mean some kind of balance or veto between the 10% and the 90%, unless that 10% was able to hook up with uh, other pro-Russian or revanchist forces of some kind. But you might not get that far, because most people say that the flashpoint would be uh, immediately after elections, uh, putative elections in the Donbass, i.e. when these people physically turned up in Kiev. There might be big demonstrations, terrible trouble, that kind of thing. The assumption being that uh, the winners of those elections would be uh, people with blood on their hands to some extent. So the idea that this would be a spanner in the works of the Ukrainian system is, is much more immediate. You know, It's not about how it might work in the long term, but problems that might maybe result. So it's obviously very complicated. There are a lot of reasons why this might not work but from a big picture perspective there are also from where Kadri started some powerful reasons why Vladimir Putin might want this to work because you know sanctions have been in place for a long time they've been quite painful it's quite clear that the US is not going to shift as he hoped I mean all the reasons that Kadri laid out at the beginning and Putin is the kind of leader that is able to sometimes get over technocratic and bureaucratic obstacles to to his actions. So if we sort of assume that he really does want something to happen 
and sees the bigger picture as more important than the micropolitics of, of, of Ukrainian regions. What should Europeans be trying to do in order to move this forward and to take uh, advantage of uh, what might be a real opening? Well, um, Putin actually uh, is also quite fixated on micro picture as well. If you listen to him at the Valdai meeting, uh, he said that, and I think that was quite honest and sincere, that he fears handing over control of the border, Ukrainian-Russian border, before uh, political conditions are in place, because he fears, you know, Andy said that Ukrainians fear that, that the winners from Donbass will end up in Kiev. Putin fears that Ukraine ends up in Donetsk and, and, and some sort of Srebrenica-style massacre will follow. I think that is insane, uh, but I also think that Russians believe that sort of rhetoric. They really have painted a terrible picture of what they say, of, of the perceived Ukrainian nationalism and, and they see it in, in totally skewed ways. I mean, Donetsk suffering an obvious defeat is something that Putin cannot afford. So um, I think he has also lots of hesitation. What Europeans should do? Well, I think this talk uh, in any official level, it will be handled in the UN Security Council, where, where, where Europe is represented by UK, France, then Sweden is a member right now. In any case, some European powers are present there and they should coordinate and try to shape the process. And another avenue, obviously, is, is the Normandy process with uh, Germany and, and France. So I don't think there is a sort of a silver bullet there, but one should try to make sense of the Russian proposal and be very clear about what would fly for Europe and, and what would not, and what would be the preconditions of, of any movement forward. The one problem there is the mismatch between the actors. You know, the Normandy process, which is linked to Minsk, is uh, Germany and France. France is in the UN, but Germany isn't. Um, Germany, uh, for all of its virtues, is not particularly a military power. So that passes the ball to France alone. If there was to be a military commitment to a peacekeeping force, um, France would have to lead the assembly of such maybe the UK would contribute, but it seems to be up to France to lead that process, and we're not sure if Macron is up to that. So if we suspend disbelief for a second and assume that a deal is possible, maybe we can figure about what that means for EU-Russia relations, because we had this kind of weird moment of EU unity since Crimea was annexed. I remember when ECFR first started, our first report said that Russia had divided Europe more completely than anyone since Donald Rumsfeld had split it into new and old Europe. And it was, at that time, 10 years ago, you know, such a, a kind of neuralgic division between East and West within Europe that it wasn't even possible to talk about Russia in many European forums for fear that, that punches would fly and that, that there'd be a breakdown in solidarity. Um, so it was quite a miracle when the EU managed to agree to these sanctions after the annexation of Crimea. And the fact that they're still in place several years later, I think, has surprised many people, not least the, the Russian president. But what happens to that unity if, uh, if there is a deal on, on peacekeepers? Well, one, one thing that has changed and that um, works in the direction of greater unity is that 
there is a sense in Europe, uh, particularly growing over the last year or so, that this problem isn't confined to Ukraine or even just Russia and Ukraine. By interfering so obviously in virtually every election and political problem, America, France, Catalonia, Germany, I think Putin has been strategically inept. He has only served to reinforce the message that, this is, that all of these problems are connected. Sanctions on Russia, Ukraine, blah, 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 blah. So that has reinforced the sense that sanctions for the moment need to stay. I mean, the bulk of the sanctions are related to Donbass and Minsk process. So if Minsk is implemented, then, then Greece will be lifted. And, uh, and that will, of course, open up the question, what next on Russia? And, and that is quite fascinating because it is true that the European Union has been very united on Russia lately, but that unity is on the surface. I mean, everyone approves of sanctions, or at least the ones who do not deep, uh, deep down approve of them, they aren't going to break ranks. But indeed, uh, should the Minsk agreement be implemented and sanctions become obsolete, then I think we don't know what to make of Russia. I don't think that we will go back to the same splits we used to have, because back then there was deep difference in assessment. Some countries believed that Russia was still somehow modernizing and democratizing, although slowly and with deters. And others thought that Russia was a consolidating authoritarian power that was dangerous. I think on assessment level, uh, many of us have shifted. Germany will not go back to its assessment of 10 years ago, neither I think will France. But even so, you know, what to do about Russia? How should I understand Russia? What is Russia about? Where is it moving? What should Europe's level of ambition be vis-a-vis -vis Russia? What should be our sort of policy and strategy? There is nothing. So it sounds like we need to have another podcast on how Europe would deal with a cooperative Russia. And I think that I found two pretty good guests to discuss that with. Maybe just to bring this podcast to an end and before we start the bookshelf segment, I can ask you one last question, which is what percentage chance do you think, do each of you think there is that um, this opening might actually lead to some kind of durable peace? Well, um, Kurt Volker, uh, America's representative to the uh, process, he thinks that it is 20% and that might be about correct. I think Russia wants out, but it's the question whether they can find a path that satisfies them is very complicated. So 2020 is definitely higher than the New York Times gave uh, Donald Trump of being president of the United States. The last thing we have to do on this podcast is our bookshelf segment. So where, what are you reading, Kadri? I'm just starting. I, um, I went to bookshop yesterday and I bought probably the thickest book that I have. Uh, it is Yuris Lyoskin's new book, The House of Government. It's well over a thousand pages. And it's about the fate of the Russian Revolution projected on um, the House of Government in, in Moscow. Um, not where the government is located, but the house that was built for government members, uh, better known maybe as the House on the Embankment, uh, based on Yuri Trifonov's novel. So, Yuri uh, Slyaskin discusses the fate of Russian revolutionaries. Why did they become revolutionaries? What happened to them later? How many were persecuted? 
and why didn't Russian Revolution you know stay why uh, why did it become so discredited he makes a comparison with religious movements and his argument is that that Bolsheviks didn't form a church it was just uh, a revelation that led to nothing wow sounds fascinating so I'm going to recommend something a bit closer to our topic today which is a long and very interesting essay by uh, one of ECFR's co-chairs Carl Bilt which is on ECFR's website and it's called Is Peace in Donbass Possible? If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please don't hesitate to let all your friends and family and everyone you know know about it by writing about it on your Facebook page or on ours. And even better than that, head straight to the iTunes page and leave us a review. And if you do that, and you send it to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu, you can find that you will be entered in a competition to win one of the much coveted ECFR World in 30 Minute End of the World podcast mugs, which are fantastic. They say the end is near, but the coffee is hot and um, the chance could be yours. So write to me at mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. We will put links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Andrew Wilson, Kadri Leek, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hackenbrosch, and our editor is Pauline Goering. <laughs>